So this is 3,000 verse and the dissenter uh, having an occasional chat about current affairs. And uh, uh, so Owen, uh, I think we have to start with uh, Brexit because uh, get it out of the way. The backstop or go, uh, exactly where do we think we are with that? It's unavoidable, uh, isn't it, David? You can't, uh, you can't start with anything else. We've got to the point now where we have to decide whether the most achievable option, I think, is... Theresa May's withdrawal agreement minus the backstop and the arithmetic in Parliament, Theresa May's deal uh, failed to get through four times and the issue on which it fell was the backstop. So although Boris Johnson has undergone a lot of criticism for his strategy in many ways, there's a logic behind it. Because in terms of the discussion around the landing zone that everybody talks about, the one thing the EU wanted was a reasonable certainty that something could be agreed by Parliament, and the only thing agreed by Parliament is the withdrawal agreement reluctantly perhaps, but without the backstop. Um, So that's the landing zone, it would seem, that Boris is throwing himself into, and making it quite clear in his letter to the Commission that the backstop is unacceptable. Yes, and although in Europe there's kind of an acknowledgement that British politics, politics at Westminster is in absolute chaos at the moment, but I detect that in Brussels there's kind of a frustration at that, there's almost a bemusement at what what does everybody else want, and nobody other than Boris can actually explain what they want out of this process. Maybe the Lib Dems have now said that uh, they want to... to, um, to, to do away with the referendum result altogether and, and, and uh, revoke Article 50, but no one else really has a plausible But plan. that seems to make an even bigger problem then for Labour, because if uh, a withdrawal agreement comes back, there be, may be enough Labour MPs who say, we want to leave with a deal, because that's Corbyn's ostensible uh, agenda at the present time. Yes. But of course, the Lib Dems now say they don't le- want to leave at all, so if they voted for a deal, that would be contradicting where their policy is, unless they're going to sort of wheedle out of that by saying, uh, that's only if we have a majority. Well, Labour, as I understand it, say that they want the withdrawal agreement, but that they want to renegotiate it on certain, uh, on certain terms. So that is not substantially a different position from Boris Johnson. They, they just may differ as to the parts of it that they want rid of or that they want to renegotiate. And then if we come back to the idea of not having a backstop, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about animal health. Uh, that was one of the very, very few uh, things that were in the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Animal plant yes. and health was one of the cross-border areas that uh, everybody agreed was necessary. Um, long before the EEC even, that you know, Northern Ireland had its own idea of animal health because uh, it was uh, recognised as an important part of our economy and that the good health of animal plants was essential in so much, such a small country to sustain. Um, so uh, in terms of animal plant and health, I don't think anyone's going to, there may be a codifying that we might be reluctant to see, but at the end of the day, there will be no ostensible difference to what happens now. But when you get into food, uh, regulations and food controls that's a different thing because we heard the other week in House of Parliament that uh, from the Freight Forwarding Association I believe that the logistics of moving uh, products, food products even across into 
Irish markets leaving aside Northern Ireland but the Irish market were going to mean that the the costs of doing business in that respect would have meant that they may, you know many supermarkets may just think it's too expensive to service such a small market in the future uh, and you might see prices go up uh, or or products withdrawn from the market and of course uh, if you have that in Northern Ireland we would get hit just as equally hard it's it's an argument that we haven't actually heard explored and um it is a concern and i i just wonder why we haven't uh heard anything investigating that those kind of issues around supply chains around uh, the provision of goods into shops from great britain to northern ireland because if there's an if there's a border in the irish sea even if it's only really operating one way and that seems to be what's an offer at the moment um then all of those issues will affect us because that's the essence of the single market of course in mm -hmm. in the uk that the supermarkets broadly speaking wouldn't wouldn't say i know supermarkets take it down to your very specific local area how much sometimes they charge but broadly speaking the you know the supermarkets have the same kind of pricing and product uh, promotions and all the rest here in northern ireland as you do in the rest of the uk but if you had to say we're offering this uh, in terms of price uh, in gb and then had to come over and say we're offering this over northern ireland that kind of very clearly says there are different markets there it becomes a problem and there's also evidence of course we that we, we we saw a report last week suggesting that uh, the northern ireland economy as a whole will take a one two three percent hit in the event of uh, the backstop coming into force well in Again, fact that was no deal or backstop so that was either way with a backstop or no deal yes. our economy was going to get hit regardless uh, i think yeah. there were two different uh, surveys but they both came up with basically the same numbers uh, so clearly the the any distancing from the single market is to the detriment of our northern Ireland economy yes yes absolutely and um uh, another aspect of uh, uh, of that which you, you kind of alluded to david was we've heard a lot an awful lot about the good friday agreement in uh, in in terms of justifying the backstop animal animal health is one of the areas where that could be justified in terms of uh, mentions of the good friday or of um of uh, the border or uh, customs or any of the other uh, kind of pertaining issues in the Good Friday Agreement, they just don't exist. Well, the thing that, that, that also slightly concerns me is everybody is saying the Good Friday Agreement if, if Britain leaves the UK. And this is, this is actually coming a lot from the southern politicians as well, that if the Good Friday, uh, if, if Brexit happens, somehow the Good Friday Agreement will be irreparably damaged. But my reading would be that actually there would be an even greater need for the agreement in terms of north-south cooperation, east-west development of, of how to build and deepen collaboration on issues uh, that may arise out of Brexit. So uh, I, I'm a bit confused as to why all of a sudden uh, it's Armageddon for the Good Friday Agreement, almost. Uh, yes, but with that in mind, I mean, you can understand that if you came from a nationalist perspective, um, or even if you came from a very sort of uncompromising Remain perspective, you might try and use those sorts of org arguments, even though they're not actually borne out by the text itself. But why has the unionist response been uh, been so muted? Why haven't we heard... Uh, we, we've, actually, we, we've had some great papers by people like um, 
like Lord Trimble and Lord Bew, uh, spelling out precisely why the backstop is a difficulty in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. But why hasn't that been followed up by uh, political parties really, really driving home a concerted campaign, um, pointing out the, the, the dangers that this poses? The, the, the striking thing is that the backstop was raised uh, as, a, as a very real issue as far back as December 2017. Mm. And yet it's only now that people are actually looking at, at, at something very specific in terms of what is acceptable. You know, it's there seems to be almost people sleeping at the wheel as to consequences and how to actually uh, yes. deal with this. Well, there's a there's a timeline there, isn't there? Because uh, in December 2017, you're describing or you're talking about the, the joint report um, and, and articles 49 and, and, and 50 in that report. Uh, sketched out in broad terms something that's become known as the backstop um, and we the, the the backstop as we know it now has essentially become the EU's interpretation of that which uh, w w which was sketched out in, in March of that year but from December right through to July I think or perhaps it was June when the, when the British government uh, put out a paper on this there was little or no uh, work done on what the ba what the articles 49 and 50 meant from a unionist perspective or from a British perspective. And the DUP being so close to the Conservatives, we're told at that time, it seems remarkable that uh, the withdrawal agreement happened in terms of May presenting it to Parliament, uh, and yet there seems to be nothing in the background going on about uh, first of all, knowing what was coming down the line, and secondly, challenging it and forcing change. The, May's response was basically to turn us in, you know, to, to shift the, the direction of travel into regularly, uh, regulatory and uh, customs union alignment uh, as the basis of the withdrawal agreement, and one would have imagined then the basis of the final agreement two years down the line at the end of 2020. Well, from my perspective, the, the, the problem that I could see when Articles 49 and 50 uh, came out was that they were unsellable to some parts of the Conservative Party um, because they did seem to imply that there would be uh, a, a certain amount of um, regulation across the UK and, and, and regulations staying in line with the, the single market. And we knew that that was a difficulty for, for parts of the Conservative Party. The DUP are supposed to be very well connected to those parts of the Conservative Party. So why didn't they see that uh, tension as, as as being a potential problem as the months went on? Well, I think I think you know, in mitigation, uh, having raised the point, I'll I'll, I'll put in some mitigation. Yeah. It seemed that Please not do. even uh, May's cabinet really knew what was going on. Of course, at the very end, with Dominic Raab resign uh, on, on the very last day, almost as it were, of the withdrawal agreement coming to reality, because he said that he hadn't been aware of some of the final changes. So May did, you know, she kept her cabinet under a mushroom or in, in a mushroom scenario, really, which is, you know, can we expect more from the DUP in that? Well, th th that was an attitude that was taken right uh, the way throughout the negotiations under Theresa May, which was that you sidestepped the latest obstacle and you kept things on the road for a few months longer or for a few days longer. And uh, that when the next obstacle came up you would somehow find a way to get around it and that is a strategy that might work for a while but as we've discovered it's not sustainable in the long term and particularly not when you're negotiating with the EU. So Boris has a landing zone uh, but that landing zone has to be fairly narrow in respect of the DUP if we're not to see sovereignty ceded 
to the UK, which everybody says we have to leave as a single as a single country. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, we are where we are now, um, and we are where we are because of the referendum. And I have to ask, David Cameron, hero or villain? Well, the, the David Cameron, hero, hero or villain, will be uh, the way that the question will be framed in, in in all the newspaper articles and everything else. But as as ever in real life, it's going to be a bit more complicated than that because David Cameron, in many ways, is instincts were right in the decisions that he made throughout his tenure as Prime Minister. It's just that sometimes um, the way that he followed through in those decisions didn't match up to the instinct. Because we had in Northern Ireland, of course, if we if we start uh, looking at being parochial um, at the Youth Conf project, I mean, Cameron was probably right in saying you've got to storm it there, you've got parties <coughs> in government. We've got parties in government. You need to be growing up and get on and and run your run Stormont the way the Good Friday Agreement has set been set up for you to run. Get on with it, uh, and then came in with UCOMF. <coughs> okay. So uh, David Cameron, of course, started with UCOMF uh, or started uh, UCOMF, which seemed to me at the time to be a bit of a uh, Ulster unions have the votes. We've got the money. Let's do something. So uh, I, I don't doubt his instinct of, of trying to move politics on but I also get the impression that he didn't really understand the beast that he was working with um, and that his desire simply to be able to say that he had delivered uh, his party promise of standing in every constituency kind of overtook the practical realities of what that was going to mean. Yeah, I mean first of all the rationale behind it um, was sound he wanted to give Northern Ireland a voice in in UK politics but yes the way that it was put into practice uh, didn't work out they uh, they quite quickly ran into issues um, around unionist unity and, and seats in Fermanagh South Tyrone even even South Belfast there was a discussion about that at one time the, the South uh, Fermanagh South Tyrone ended up being an agreed candidate and um, there was also divisions between the parties uh, from the from the offset, wasn't there, David? Uh, well, I don't believe that they, they were exactly on the same page on everything. No. Um, I think, as I say, it always struck me that it was convenience more than any sort of long-term strategy. Um, the instinct, as you say, was right. Yes. Um, but it really hadn't been worked through in any comprehensive or serious way. Well, the, the Ulster Unionists, I think, saw it as... Money. Um, well, they saw it as money. They also saw it as a short-term tactic to get themselves back on the electoral map. And I mean, True. they were struggling at the time, or strugg they're struggling more now. Um, I, I remember when uh, when when Jim Nicholson, who who was the first kind of uh, successful uh, manifestation of of Ucomf uh, when when he won his European parliamentary election and actually was the first uh, candidate elected. Um, the Ulster Unionist uh, attitude, and, and, and quite defensively so, in many, in many ways, was that we are back, and I think that's what uh, that's what they wanted out of the relationship. Whereas the Conservatives saw it as a way into Northern Ireland politics, and possibly, let's be honest, as a takeover in the end. Yeah, as a very as a very low start point. Um, but but that instinct of of uh, believing that it was probably the right thing to do, yes, uh, but not really 
having the the breadth of understanding what the consequences were that actually can also then be seen within even the the EU a debate where at the start you know he split out of the e, uh, he allowed sorry he I think he allowed his European MEPs to split out and create their own little party in the European Parliament uh, which was probably not a bad thing because it, it, it allowed them to reach into Eastern Europe to some extent uh, and build that that cross-European alliance but at the same time split them off from uh, the decision makers predominantly within the EU um, and it, it always again seemed to be a bit tactical rather than or, or uh, rather he just allowed it to happen without really having any emotional uh, presence within that decision it was kind of it's tactical it's strategy it's probably the right thing to do instinctively it feels right let's do it yes i think there was always as well an eye on um how these things would would, would go down in kind of a short-term uh basis in in, in the media and I, and as far as i remember um the european conservatives and reformists w w was greeted warmly in some circles so yes it was it was more of a he was a tactician rather than a strategist and that perhaps we see in the, in the in the referendum as well, that it was something that you know we'll do this because we've promised it and because it's a good idea because it might put down UKIP, um, but really then a single-minded, this is all we're going to do. No preparation for what happened if the vote went the other way, which as a government you would have you would have expected some idea uh, lots of threats and promises on terms of what might happen if you didn't vote our way. The old uh, project fear thing again but no real sense of exactly where that would would yes. end up well to take it back a, a little bit instinctively again uh, he was right to want to renegotiate uh, Britain's um, relationship with the EU because the EU was becoming something that we weren't comfortable with um, but he must have known that he wasn't likely to get anything sellable and um, at, at that point, the plan went off the rails. But again, instead of actually taking what he had negotiated, and I, I'd say that they, they were very, it was, it was, it's limited. It, was, it was very limited in terms of what he brought back. But instead of, and I've seen it mentioned in some of the papers at the weekend, instead of it throwing back at Europe and say, if you really want us to leave, you know, you're going to have to do better than that, he kind of took that to people and kind of said, that's the reform we're going to get. Do you want to stay or leave? And people said, "Well, if that's all you're going to get out of reform, will nobody to me seemed in the in the referendum campaign to really be voting for the EU." You know, hmm. even Cameron was arguing, "We'll reform the you know, we've got reform, or we have to have Europe a reformed Europe." But no one could show demonstratively how you were going to create that reform in Europe that would be more acceptable to the UK. Well, that's true, but in many respects, I mean, did that not reflect accurately the British attitude to the EU Be before the referendum result? Um, now we've got uh, kind of great enthusiasm in some quarters for the EU and people even identifying with that institution. But before the EU referendum result, almost the default political attitude to the EU in, um, in Britain was scepticism. And even if you didn't believe that we that that uh, we should leave, you thought that there were very many um, problems with the, with uh, with the EU institutionally. All of the arguments, all of the good arguments for staying in the EU, were around 
the disruption, the cost, the difficulty, the complexity of leaving. Uh, they weren't about the benefits of staying. Benefits of staying. Yeah. And while you can see that uh, that that wasn't a particularly compelling sales offering to the voters, it was also an accurate reflection of British, particularly British Conservative attitudes uh, to the EU. I think that's every everyone was a Eurosceptic, if not a if not a lever. And um, and that's a, I, I mean I think you know, in the past we've talked also that you know I think mentioning the big society because that's where all the instincts seem to be about right in conservative philosophy that you know, it, it should be about empowering people about allowing people to make decisions about their own locality and to get government out of people's lives uh, didn't see a lot of that across the board but you know the instinct was right but no real substantive follow-through on that there wasn't a lot of follow-through and, and I mean when you think back in the big society it's difficult actually to remember what it consisted of and, and therein uh, lay the problem. It was driven by the rights instinct. Um, it was about communitarianism, it was supposed to be about Burke's little platoons and so on but the idea that you could create the civil society and it was supposed to be about a civic society um, from the top down rather than the bottom up was always uh, was always a problem, and I mean they they, they tried to implement things. I think um, you know that that there was a big society bank in which uh, which was going to be an opportunity for groups to to, to draw down money. There was a localism act, uh, and and I suppose the free schools in a sense were were, were driven by that kind of big society vision. Um, but it wasn't really a coherent program, and eventually. Yeah. He had to bin it, so that kind of defining policy uh, ended up being something that wasn't spoken about because eventually it was a failure. But instinctively, as we said, I think he was probably on the right track on very uh, on an awful lot, um, but didn't have the political grit uh, to really be able to see forward and to see where some of those instincts uh, could be frustrated. Uh, by some of the broader decisions he was taking? Well, where he does uh, benefit from uh, comparison is, is to his successor, Theresa May. Yeah. And if you're going to compare <laughs> David Cameron to Theresa May, he was a, a he was a very successful Prime Minister. I think that's fair enough. And we still do, the jury's still, of course, well out on, uh, on Boris, Boris going absolutely. forward. On, catch up another couple of weeks and see uh, where we stand. And uh, good talking to you.